Welcome to the Green Acres Garden Podcast with Farmer Fred. It's the podcast that'll help gardeners like you get an even greener thumb. So whether you're new to gardening or a seasoned horticulturist, you're sure to learn something new. I'm Farmer Fred, Master Gardener Fred Hoffman, and today we're talking about Plants for Dry Shade. University of California Environmental Horticulture Advisor Carrie Reed has plenty of suggestions for unthirsty plants for those areas of your yard that don't get much, if any, sunshine. Also, Master Gardener Pam Bone explains how a tree moves water and nutrients and what you're doing may be cutting off those pipelines in the tree. We also have staff picks and a list of garden tasks for the week. Welcome to episode 19 of the Green Acres Garden Podcast. Let's go. When it doesn't rain, things get dry. But a problem for people trying to pick out plants that don't need very much water is there aren't too many plants that are meant for dry shade. But one person we know does have a pretty good list of plants that can succeed in dry shade. If that is what you're facing, all you have to do is listen to what Carrie Reed has to say. She's the Environmental Horticultural Advisor for UC Cooperative Extension. And Carrie, you've been conducting plant trials for years on trying plants out using different watering regimens. And it really has produced a, a fairly thorough list and an amazing list, too, of how some plants can actually do better on less water. Yeah, that's right. We have a misperception of shady places being moist. But, of course, in our climate, we can have dry, shady areas in the summertime. So you need those plants that can compete with tree roots and you know, for very small amounts of water. And fortunately, there are quite a few that look great. We should establish exactly what we mean by low water use. So what in your mind uh, constitutes low water use? Well, here's an interesting thing that most people don't think about. Plants that are in shade are getting less solar radiation. And so their water requirements are typically about half of what you would need if you were in the full sun, depending on how deep that shade is. So a lot of the plants that we're going to talk about today and that we have evaluated in shade in Davis can go as long as a month in between irrigation and then a nice deep soak will do them good. Now, that's if you've got a nice deep soil. If you don't, you could easily go two weeks with a lot of these plants once they've been established. And then some might just like a small amount. And by a small amount, I mean enough to get the soil moist down about a foot and then just keep that topped up once a week. Never more than that. Never more than that. Exactly. And there are just uh, so many that do well put on an extended show or a limited show. But still, if you're looking to establish a garden in dry shade, we have some plants for you. So let's uh, do this in somewhat alphabetical order. And let's start with uh, one that really attracts a very beautiful butterfly, and that's the California pipe vine. Yeah, this is uh, has an amazing looking flower that attracts this gorgeous butterfly. So these are native to right where we live along the American River right now. 
You can see these pipe vine swallowtail butterflies fluttering around the pipe vine. So these are great to put, you know, a nice little stake or a little pillar and have something vertical in the garden and uh, just support our native wildlife. And one thing we probably should point out when we're talking about plants for dry shade, it doesn't mean you can plant them and never water them. They take water to get established, don't they? Yes. At least a year, you want to make sure that you're keeping the soil moist and you're not letting it dry completely down. Otherwise, the roots don't grow out into the surrounding soil and down deeply. So that's what you're looking for the first year creating an irrigation schedule that allows you to really encourage the plant to add roots. And then in a subsequent year, if we're talking a one gallon size that you plant, subsequent years, that plant is going to have a large volume of soil from which it can draw moisture. Just for perspective, in the actual trials, some of these plants have gone all summer with zero supplemental water. Now, I won't say they thrived, but they're still alive. Some of them did just fine. Okay. Name the just fine ones. So, uh, Ribes viburnifolium or evergreen current. This is a low-growing evergreen shrub. And it's got really fragrant foliage. So, if you brush against it, it's got a really nice smell. And it'll put on little little blossoms once it's really well established. You couldn't tell the difference between those that got monthly or twice monthly irrigation from the ones that went all summer. And it attracts hummingbirds, I understand. Uh, when it's blooming, yep. Yep. The uh, evergreen current uh, also answers the question we hear a lot is, I have a native oak on my property. What can I plant beneath it? And the first rule when you're looking for something that goes under a native oak, it has to have similar watering requirements. So the evergreen current would be a good choice for that. Excellent choice. Excellent choice. Yeah. There's a, there's a couple of them in here that would also fit that bill. So the Lomandra longifolias are not California natives, but they're native to Australian uh, sort of scrubby woods edges. So they can take some sun, but if you put them in the shade, like the fantastic platinum beauty that is one of the current hot items. I was out at a wholesale grower today and they said they had a hundred thousand one gallon units and that they couldn't keep them in stock <laughs> wow and another popular one i know is is called lime tough and when you glance at it you think oh well that's an ornamental grass it's not a grass but it has sort nope. of grass strappy leaves yes yeah that's my favorite because that one can go in the sun where it will be a little more vertical and a little more structural. And then if you put it in the shade, it gets this nice blousey sort of, you know, more fountain form look to it. And that's one that once it's established could go all summer in shade without supplemental irrigation. And in the full sun, when we trialed that one, it was only watered twice 
between April and October. And did okay. Couldn't tell the difference between that and the one that got the high water. Another plant that I've heard that some people like to use beneath the oaks that doesn't require much water is uh, the Australian bluebell creeper. Oh, that's one of those plants I took home and put in my yard after we trialed it. And it is one of my just all-time favorite shade plants. That looks good 12 months out of the year. It's just a really fresh spearmint green. It's got these, you know, sweet little leaves. It's easy to manage. It stays it, it doesn't get out of hand where it needs a lot of pruning. And right now it's just starting to put on true blue little bluebell flowers. It's just a delight and yeah. it very low water. That's the Australian bluebell creeper. Uh, for those of you that like botanical names, what is that? Salia heterophylla? Correct. All right. Now, I don't want to uh, shortchange you for all these just fine plants <laughs> that you mentioned that do well with very little or no water. So please continue your list. We've got the evergreen currant, uh, the lamandra, and the Australian bluebell creeper. Well, one of the ones that I think is really underplanted is the oak leaf hydrangea. Hmm. So this is hydrangea quercifolia. And there are several cultivars out on the market. I know that uh, both Star Roses and Plants and Sunset Western Garden Plant Collection have new cultivars of this one. So this doesn't have the, the typical shaped leaf of a hydrangea that wilts every day in the middle of the summer. These have leaves that look like giant oak leaves. So they're very, you know, dentated edges. So they're pretty inattractive for that aspect. But then they put on these big, beautiful blooms that are typically more shaped like a cone, Mm. but they can be round. And then like all hydrangeas, the flower will change colors as it fades. And these are so much more low water use and drought tolerant than the typical hydrangeas, which are not at all. <laughs> no. I mean, those need to be watered in our heat like twice a week at least to keep them from wilting every single day. So not a low water plant, even in the shade. How tall does the oak leaf hydrangea get? So these are shorter. So they'll maybe top out in maturity at the three to four feet. So they're not really big. So that makes them kind of a great understory plant for under trees. And then you can put them Like you can, with the landscape design, you want to layer your plants with the taller to the back and the lower to the front and graduate them down so that you can see everything. So these make a nice sort of back layer because they'll, you know, grow up three or four feet tall and other plants look really nice in front of them. If people visit your website, the UC Landscape Plant Irrigation Trials, and look at the pictures, they're going to notice... In all those pictures, wow, these people use a lot of mulch. And that would be part of the secret of having plants succeed in dry shade. For sure. Especially if you're using drip irrigation, which, of course, we always encourage you to do when you're not irrigating lawn. 
then you want that drip irrigation right next to the soil and a nice thick layer of mulch will both improve the soil over time and hold that moisture in to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. In your trial garden, which obviously being a trial garden, everything is planted in rows mm-hmm. and it looks like the mulch is mounted up to a height of maybe eight or 10 inches or so. Uh, th- that's not how tall it is. I think it just ends up looking that way. It's we, we try to keep about a three inch layer of mulch. Oh, good. I just saved some money then. OK. <laughs> yeah. Eight inches would be uh, <laughs> impossible with some of the smaller plants for sure. Yeah. No, three inches is good. And in the shade, if it gets to two, you know, that's okay, because you're going to lose less moisture from the soil surface anyway. But what you also accomplish by keeping that mulch layer is that you keep the surface of the soil cooler. And plant roots really like that. And soil microbes really like that. So you really create a healthier soil environment and root environment by keeping that blanket of mulch on there. Mulch does so much uh, for so many. It feeds the soil as it breaks down. It impedes weed development. It moderates soil temperature and it moderates soil moisture loss, too. So there's a lot going for a good organic mulch. Yeah. And for those that are really environmentally conscious, it's putting carbon back into the soil and keeping carbon-based materials out of landfills because you're reusing wood products that otherwise would be in a landfill, breaking down and producing that most powerful of gases, methane. So what other plants have really intrigued you during these trials? There are two Mahonias that I'm just crazy about right now because they're so interesting. Some of us are familiar with the native Mahonia aquifolium, which is called Oregon grape. These two have very different leaf forms, very interesting. They still have that great yellow bloom early in the season that provides for pollinators that are hanging around early. But there's Mahonia marvel which is very upright and has its branches arranged in uh, like levels of whorls as you go around. So super interesting, nice vertical element in the garden. And then the other one is Mahonia Soft Caress. And this one makes like a big, beautiful mound of leaflets that have long, narrow willow-like leaves, which hence the name Soft Caress. And it's just such a gorgeous mound of foliage all year long in the garden. And neither one of these uh, need much water at all to just stay looking beautiful in the shade. Are they kind of prickly like the uh, Oregon grape? The marvel is the Soft Caress is not at all. Yeah, so these are hybrids between two Mahonia species. And so they have some very different, really interesting characteristics. And I have seen both of these at Green Acres. I really want to encourage people to plant more. And we talked about this before, but more heucheras because they're just such an interesting summer front of the border shade plant. And they're coming now in all different colored foliage, but I'm really fond of those that are heucheris sanguinea. 
cultivars because these are bred from native heucheras native to Southern California and Arizona. And so these are much more low water use than some of the new ones. So these are going to be uh, great bloomers. There's so many different cultivars that are out there that you can make little arrangements of different colors or all one color, but they're, they're little Flower spikes are just so cheerful and great for bees. And then the foliage stays looking pretty good most of the year. Exactly. A lot of great plants for the shade. If you want more information, we'll have a link in today's show notes, a link to the UC Landscape Plant Irrigation Trials with all the plants that Carrie Reed and her staff have been testing out there at UC Davis. Carrie Reed, once again, is the Environmental Horticultural Advisor for UC Cooperative Extension. We've been learning about plants for dry shade. Carrie, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Did you ever wonder how a tree works and what you do to that tree may affect its life? In fact, there are some who say that the reason trees die is basically your fault because you might be hacking away at it and not even knowing it. How's that? Well, we'll explain. With me is Pam Bone, Sacramento County Master Gardener, also in a former life, an urban forester, and she knows trees. She's part of the Sacramento Tree Foundation as well. And Pam, let's talk about how a tree works. And when I'm talking about injuries to trees, uh, well, that can certainly affect the life of a tree, especially if you've got a weed whacker or a mower or even a even a high impulse sprinkler hitting the trunk of the tree could be damaging it. Definitely. In fact, let me explain to you about uh, woody plant anatomy. However, the first thing I'm going to say is that let's just look at a tree. What is a tree? And by the way, this all applies to woody plants in general, uh, shrubs as well. But we'll just say tree. Uh, with a tree, then we have the crown of the tree, which is the head. You know how sometimes you call your head the crown? Well, that's where the leaves are. And that's where photosynthesis is taking place. And the plant is making its food. And then we have the uh, trunk or the stem, the the woody portion. And I'm going to talk about what's inside there and all the stuff that it's doing. And then we have what's called the root crown. And the root crown is where people get confused sometimes. You'll sometimes say crown and you're not really sure what they're talking about. The root crown is just where the roots go into the ground. It's kind of the top of the root ball in a container. And then it's sort of a flaring area where it flares into the ground, or at least it should look like a flare going into the ground. That's a discussion for another day when it looks like a telephone pole going into the ground. That's not good. Um, So basically, that's just kind of what a tree looks like. So now let's get into the anatomy. What's going on inside that affects what you were just talking about, the practices that we might do to trees and how we can injure them. So first thing we have is the bark. And the bark is really critical because it helps to defend against uh, diseases and insects from getting in and protects against water loss, uh, from getting too hot, too cold. And so it's kind of like the tree's skin. And so it's real important to have an intact bark. And then just inside the bark is a tissue, a fancy tissue called the phloem tissue. And the phloem tissue is the transportation from the top of the tree, that crown I was telling you about. And it's transporting all of that food, the carbohydrates like sugar and starches that were made in the leaves. And then it's transported down throughout the plant 
into the trunk and eventually down to the roots. So then inside that tissue is the most important tissue of all in a woody plant. It's called the cambium. And some people might be uh, familiar with the cambium if they've ever done budding and grafting or if they've ever um, looked at a plant in the spring and we talk about that the bark is slipping. And in fact, this time of the year, uh, it's kind of slickery underneath there. And that's where the cambium tissue, which is only about one cell thick, and it's actively dividing tissue. We call that meristematic tissue. And it's where cell division takes place. And it forms the phloem tissue. Remember that transportation from the root or the, the top of the tree, the crown, down to the root area. And um, it forms the phloem to the outside. And then towards the inside, it forms what we call the xylem, or some people call it the sapwood. And this is the new wood that transports water and minerals uh, from the roots and then goes back up into the tree. And that xylem or sapwood only is about maybe 20 cells, depending on how old the, the tree or the plant is, about 20 cells thick that's really actively taking water and minerals from the roots and moving it up. The rest of it turns into that heartwood. You know, the woody part of a tree. You go knock, knock, knock on a tree and you can hear that that wood. Well, that's the heartwood made up of xylem tissue that's no longer active in transport. And so then you go, well, why is all this important? Why do I need to know what's going on in there? Because if you take a, a tie, for instance, uh, you're staking a tree and you tie it up and you leave the tree tie on, pretty soon the tree keeps growing through that sapwood or xylem. It gets bigger and bigger, making growth rings every year. And what happens is that tree tie pretty soon cuts into the trunk of the tree. Then it cuts off the sugars and the starches being transported in the phloem. And then pretty soon, if it just keeps growing, it cuts into that cambium tissue And once it cuts into the cambium, you can no longer make any more phloem transport. You can no longer make any more xylem. And pretty soon the tree then usually runs out of water. In fact, a lot of times when you have injury, whether uh, a tree has been hit by a car and there's a big hunk off of it or an animal's chewed through it or you've put a tree tie around it or you have roots that maybe circle round and round at that root crown or down below, and they literally choke off the tree from transporting the water. And you know what the first thing that people say with any of this stuff? Oh, the tree's drying out. I need to put more water on. Of course. And it's, yeah, that's the first reaction when you see the top of the tree looking as if it's brown and dying or the leaves are off colored like they don't have enough fertilizer. You either throw the fertilizer on or you throw water on. But you have to be more of a detective and find out maybe something is going on with that tree inside that uh, trunk or that stem or that branch. And so this is really important to understand the anatomy of a tree. All right, let's back up and talk about the proper way to stake that tree. It's not uncommon that, uh, and it's an unfortunate sight in neighborhoods when people buy a new tree, they'll leave the stake that came with the tree right next to the tree, tightly bound around that tiny little stake. Do you need to stake a tree at all once it's planted? Well, if it was grown in the nursery without a stake, 
you'd never have to stake that tree. Unfortunately, for many different reasons, and the nurseries have reasons sometimes uh, for uh, economics, and uh, you can get a tree that's a little bit taller, a little bit faster by putting a stake on it. It's easier for transport. It's easier for storing it in the yard and moving it around. Um, But you don't have to leave the nursery stake on. That should never be left on. In fact, we have this two-stake method where you stake on either side of the tree. And I have seen people using properly that two-stake method, and yet they still leave the nursery stake on. And here's the problem. You leave the nursery stake on, and you've got two problems. Remember I was just telling you about the woody plant anatomy. Well, those little tree ties rub, rub, rub against uh, the um, the trunk there. And also, so does that little stake. And you get an injury to the bark. And then pretty soon, boars can get in. You can get fungus that can get in there. Or you start killing off that transport system that I was talking about that's inside the tree. The internal plumbing of the tree then is disrupted, that phloem, cambium, and xylem. So no, you never want that. The other thing is, um, interestingly enough, trees need to move. And if they are restricted and they can't move, all kinds of negative things happen. And one of the biggest things is their roots don't grow properly and they don't grow fast enough. And so the tree becomes very weak and dependent. It's kind of like having your arm in a cast. If you left your arm in a cast forever and then finally tried to take the cast off, you've got this puny little arm that's quite weak and you've got to do some exercise. Well, trees need exercise too. So for both reasons, we don't ever put on a nursery stake. All right. Now about the two stake method. And and frankly, you only need to stake a tree if it won't stand up by itself. And you use that two stake method. And I think the key to securing it to those two stakes is to make that figure eight loop with the uh, tree ties or tree tape and not uh, choke the trunk of the tree right off the bat, keep it loose to allow room for it to grow, and then only keep those stakes on for what, maybe a year at most? Yes, you need to find out if there's a reason it's not standing on its own after a year. Maybe you staked it too high and it didn't get to move enough. Uh, Maybe it's got a restricted or poor root system. There's lots of things going on. I do want to go back to the figure eight. Actually, with the university, we used to always recommend doing a figure eight. And then we found out that it was kind of like a little fulcrum point there where it could rub against the um, trunk. So what we recommend, it would be better if you could take uh, that wide tree... Uh, tape or, you know, some people use tire material, those uh, staking ties that you can buy. There's, I used to use old nylons, uh, you know, the pantyhose or the nylon knee highs. They worked great when people used to wear those. They don't anymore. What you do is you go from one stake to the tree and back to the stake. And then on the other stake, you do the same thing again. And so then you don't have a figure eight that could maybe cinch up or tie, uh, make a really tight little area there that could rub. And that makes it just a little bit uh, Hmm. safer for the the trunk of the tree. But as you pointed out earlier, if that uh, tree tie is left too long, it could be digging in, even if it's only digging in on one side of the tree. And uh, then you you might be choking off the plumbing system for the tree. 
Exactly. And in fact, I have photos after photos after photos. I teach a lot of classes to master gardeners about tree care, and I have so many slides on improperly staked trees and a lot of girdling where the tree ties are literally embedded inside the uh, trunk of the tree and there's no way of getting it out. Uh, the tree is eventually going to die. Sometimes it takes a long time to die because it has to use up all the sugar reserves. It has to use up all the water that's stored in there. But eventually it will die if it's gone all the way around the tree and, and choked it off. Uh, basically and cut off all of that uh, transport system. So unfortunately, uh, tree ties can be really a serious problem. Tree stakes can be a serious problem, but sometimes it's necessary. And if you don't understand quite how to do it, you should go look at an illustration. Two stakes on either side of the root ball with the tree ties coming from the stakes far enough out on either side of the root ball so that then the tree can move back and forth in the wind, which is really important for strengthening the tree trunk and increasing the root system and just lots of good benefits from movement. But you don't want it moving so much that it whips around and you've got a tree uh, stake that's so tall that the tree then beats itself against the side of the stake. That's another thing. You want to put those tree ties guys. Uh, only at the lowest point the tree will actually still remain upright so that the tree can still move back and forth. Obviously, if you stake it and you stake it too low and the tree is still leaning to the side, well, you've staked it too low. Uh, but you can also stake too high, too, and then um, the tree doesn't even get to move at all. So there's a little bit to it. It's pretty easy, but I see lots of uh, Still lots of problems. Uh, research was done on this, actually, at the University of California. And it, this research was done in the late 60s and the 70s. And unfortunately, I still see a lot of um, improper staking. We'll have links in today's show notes on how to properly stake a tree and videos as well on how to do it from the uh, Sacramento Tree Foundation. So look for those in today's uh, show notes. And we talked about other damage to the tree. Well, one more point about um, ties, and this mm -hmm. may be a problem uh, that, that you can explain to people uh, why what you think happened didn't happen. And sometimes when ties are left on a tree to a stake for too long... The tree will actually grow over that tree tie, that tree tape. And people think, oh, the tree has healed itself. I don't need to worry. No, unfortunately, what's happening is I described earlier that xylem, that woody tissue that becomes heartwood. The xylem tissue is what makes a growth ring every year. And that grows, gets bigger every single year. The material that I talked about earlier, the phloem tissue, it just kind of sloughs off into bark every year and it never gets really big. But the xylem tissue just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and keeps growing. And so you've got a stationary object. I've seen extension cords. I've <laughs> seen strings. Um, we know fences, you know, how many times have you seen out in the country a tree that's sitting there and somebody's taken their wire fence and wrapped it around the tree as a as a support for the fence? And pretty soon uh, I've got picture again, picture after picture. I even have rebar inside of a pine tree up at Lake Tahoe. <laughs> uh, and what it is, is the tree keeps growing. And pretty soon you're right. It just surrounds that and grows around it. And you see a lot of excess growth. And that's just the tree reacting to it and going ah, and, and making all this extra growth around it. But unfortunately, what's going on inside that you can't see is it's just starting to cut off all of the water and sugar 
uh, transport system. And pretty soon the tree is either going to starve to death or it's going to run out of water and it will die. This isn't a sudden death thing. It takes years and years for it to happen. So even though you may see a uh, a tree t- a tree tie or tape or rebar that has been yeah. engulfed by the tree, the tree is still not functioning normally, and its days are numbered. No, and in fact, you can look at a tree. Um, actually, I ha- I was asked to go out on a a call for one of the master gardeners and they had a beautiful holly tree, just gorgeous. And they said, you know, we've had this holly tree in for at least uh, 25, 30 years. And all of a sudden the last few years, the top of it just doesn't look good. It's a little off color. The um, summer months when it's hot outside, it looks, the leaves look a little bit scorched and brown. What's going on, Pam? Can you take a look at it? And it took me all Well, it took me a little while to find out because it was barely sticking out. I searched all the way around and I found a green tree tie, just maybe the last half inch of it still in there. (laughs) And they said, oh, my gosh, that had been in there for 20 years. But it had taken that long for it to finally cut through and literally cut off so much of that um, sapwood or xylem tissue that water could not transport during the hot summer months. There wasn't enough of it. It's kind of like taking a garden hose. And you know how uh, if you don't have one of those nice shut off little nozzles on it and you used to just crimp the hose a little so that you could run over to the car to wash it. Well, there's a little water that'll still dribble out, but not enough. It's the same with the tree. Pretty soon you've cut off so much of that xylem tissue. There's hardly any left for water to get through, but a little bit does manage to dribble through um, until it doesn't, until pretty soon. And you know what the symptoms are then and what the signs are? It looks like you don't get fertilizer. Well, where does nutrients come from? The The, top. (laughs) It it doesn't come from you putting it on the plant. That's not going to help. It comes from the root system. It comes from the ground. And and then where does the food come from? Well, it comes from the top of the tree, from photosynthesis, from the leaves making its own food. And when pretty soon this food's being made and it comes down and it can't get into the root system at all, and then so the roots start starving or the water and the nutrients, the minerals that are in the ground can't move up the tree. Pretty soon the leaves look like you're not putting on um, enough nutrients. Uh, and that's why people think, oh, I need to fertilize it. And in fact, this this fellow had fertilized his tree. He put on extra water and it seemed like the tree just died even faster. But it was just this embedded tree tie that had been in there for years, but just never noticed it. By the way, folks, if you're listening, Pam isn't angry. She's just enthusiastic. Oh, yes. No, I'm not angry at all. I just uh, it's just amazing to see uh, when you go out into the landscape and you really start looking at this, um, how much damage we do to trees through improper staking, especially tree ties. And it's just amazing. Um, I see it year after year after year uh, called out on lots of calls, go out to commercial installations. I see so many uh, big parking lots where trees are in parking lots and everything that can go wrong with the tree in a parking lot. Uh, that's usually where it happens. But uh, tree ties are put on when the landscape company first comes in and they're directed that they have to put all these trees into a, a particular project and then nobody really watches them or they they watch them, but not very carefully. And 10 years later, the tree ties or the stakes, I've seen the stakes literally look like they're grafted to the tree. 
they're growing into the tree so much. So yes, I'm very passionate about improper staking and tree ties and all the things that we abuse the trees with. And it all boils down to knowing what's going on inside that tree. That's why it goes back to why we had to learn a little bit about woody plant anatomy. And for the same reason, too, when you damage a tree by hitting it with a weed whacker or running into it with a lawnmower or, again, having an impulse sprinkler hitting that tree directly, you'll see a discolored area from where a sprinkler has been hitting it. The same types of injuries are occurring. Exactly. In fact, uh, the impact sprinkler is a real good one. You don't know what's going on because you can't see it. But think of um, this transport system, think of them as like straws inside, little tubes inside the tree. So what happens when the impact sprinkler hits? It goes bam, bam, bam against the trunk. And what it's doing is just try to drink through a crushed straw. (laughs) And you know, a lot of those uh, paper straws, they fall apart really fast nowadays. That's why people like the plastic straws. But now, of course, for environmental reasons, we're going to the paper straws. Well, the paper straws collapse. Same thing happens when you're hitting a tree, bam, 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 with the impact sprinkler, or you're letting ivy grow up around a tree and it starts to squeeze the trunk or a tree tie starts to squeeze it. First thing it does, it crushes the tissue underneath and that tissue is transporting things and it can't transport through a crushed straw. And that's the, that's what's happening there. If you hit the tree with a weed whacker, what you're doing then, you're just taking off all of the phloem, cambium, and xylem. It's gone. You've just removed it or you've cut through it and severed the lifeline of the tree right there. And so that's what the problems are that's going on. You're you're really impacting what's supposed to be going on inside the tree and what's supposed to be keeping the tree living and transporting and healthy. And now you've just... Uh, unfortunately, taking that away, the tree's ability away. And that's where you have to kind of decide sometimes, has it uh, girdled all the way around? Has it circled it? Uh, Did you weed whack just part of it? Was the injury to the trunk from some animal chewing on it or a car hitting it or something uh, enough that the tree can then uh, close over the wound enough? Is there still enough phloem, cambium, and xylem left to support the tree? These are all questions that you kind of have to answer. Or you can always call in a consulting arborist to uh, do a professional diagnosis if your tree needs that's help. That's true. And that's not a bad idea. If you have uh, f- grown trees on your property, is every few years or so, spend the money on a consulting arborist to come in and give you a health check on your trees. Yes, look for either a consulting arborist or a certified arborist. They're certified through the International Society of Arboriculture, the ISA. And these are people that have met certain standards. They carry workman's comp insurance. Uh, they've taken an extensive test. Uh, they understand what's really going on and they understand the scientific principles behind uh, tree care. So I always ask that people look for a certified arborist. The other thing is, is if you just have a question about uh, trees and how they're growing and different things, your master gardener in your uh, at your local cooperative extension can often answer. And then uh, many states have nursery personnel that also may have a knowledge of trees too. So you can talk to a nursery professional. Like the ones at Green Acres Nursery and Supply. Yes, indeed. That's true. We've only scratched the surface, so to speak, on on trees and their problems. And I'm sure we'll be talking more with Pam Bone in the future about the trees in your yard. Pam Bone, urban forester, master gardener, 
tree expert, too. Thanks so much for all the information. Well, thank you very much for having me, Fred. I'm very passionate about trees, and I'd be happy to come back and give you even more information about how to keep your trees healthy, safe, and happy. We like to find out the staff picks of the employees here at Green Acres Nursery and Supply. We're at the brand new Citrus Heights store. We're talking with Demetra, and she's sort of in charge of irrigation, garden solutions, seeds, landscape supplies, and a lot of other indoor items that you would find at every Green Acres store. And with all that to choose from, how do you have a favorite? <laughs> I guess it's the one that I have been able to help people the most with. And I think today my favorite, which is subject to change, but today my favorite is going to be the MP rotators in your irrigation department. If people are looking to swap out their sprinkler heads, especially if you have the old-style impulse sprinkler heads, you can save a lot of water by going with the Hunter MP rotators, which put out little fingers of water, much, much less water usage. And you know what's really great about the MP rotators, too, is the fact that if you have heavy clay soil, like a lot of people up here in northeastern Sacramento County have, with impulse sprinklers, you get a lot of runoff. With the Hunter MP3, MP rotators, they just put out these fingers of water, and so it slowly percolates into the soil. You get less runoff. Yes, you do. They are actually so much my favorite that we have installed them all across our own yard. So they are what we water with here at Green Anchors and at all of the other locations as well. MP rotators from Hunter. I can understand why that is your favorite item. Dimitri, thank you so much. Of course, anytime. It's late May and there's a lot of things to do in the garden this week. And not surprisingly, we're facing another low water year. So each week here on the Green Acres Garden Podcast, we're going to be discussing water saving tips and best practices for a healthy landscape due especially to Northern California's unpredictable water cycles. Well, here's one that's uh, kind of interesting. Next time you take a shower, bring a bucket with you. You know all that water that goes down the drain while you're waiting for the shower to heat up? Well, the Sacramento Tree Foundation has an idea. Keep a large bucket nearby to catch that water before it goes to waste. At the end of your shower, take that bucket full of water and transfer it to another bucket that has a small 1 8 inch hole in the bottom. And then position that bucket beneath one of your thirsty trees. Put it near the outer canopy. That's where the tree's feeder roots are. Allow it to slowly drip into the soil during the day or overnight, and then move the bucket to different areas beneath that outer canopy of the tree every time you refill it. Oh, by the way, you just might want to get dressed before you take that shower bucket outside. I'm just saying. Other things to do, remove faded flowers from annuals, perennials, roses, and herbs to encourage more growth and blooms. And I've told you this before, I'll tell you again, remove any fruit that's clustered too closely together on your deciduous fruit trees. There should be about six inches of space, about the width of a fist, between any apples, pears, peaches, and nectarines that remain on the tree. And keep the ones that are the biggest. Thank you for listening to the Green Acres Garden Podcast with Farmer Fred, brought to you by Green Acres Nursery and Supply, now with seven locations in the greater Sacramento area, including the newest store in Citrus Heights at Greenback and San Juan. For more information and to find the store nearest to you, visit idiggreenacres.com. And for more great garden information, check out the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Gardeners, we appreciate Appreciate your ears. 
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are Fred Hoffman's or his guests. These gardening tips and suggestions may work for you, as well as those from alternative sources available. When using any garden products or tools, read and follow all label directions.